Father in heaven, we do uh, recognize that you are the great and glorious God, the God that is worthy of our time, our attention, our devotion here this morning. Father, when we step into your presence on a Sunday morning with the gathered church, we cannot help but stand in awe of knowing that you want to relate to us. There's nothing better, Lord. There's nothing better than knowing you and finding out more about you from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said that we are most dangerous when we are most clueless. Uh, I think some parents can relate to this. They probably felt that tinge of uh, fear when they sat in the passenger seat when one of their children was learning how to drive a car. I know my mom and dad said they were afraid. I also think about this in, uh, when I'm on one of those large fishing piers. I don't know if you've ever been to one of the ones in the south, but they stretch out uh, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards. And the business model of these fishing piers is come one, come all. And so here you have people on a fishing pier that have a desire to go fishing. They have the gear to go fishing because the pier is just glad to rent it to them. But they have no idea what they're doing. They're casting that rod about every which direction. They're not thinking about who's standing around them or what's happening or what's going on. Sometimes I wonder if the pier owners and the emergency room have some kind of business plan worked out together. The hook extraction business goes up significantly. We are most dangerous when we are most clueless. It's true for driving. It's true for fishing. It's also true for theology. Now, some of you hear that word theology and you think to yourself, well, come on, theology? Can't we get onto something a little more practical? I have real world issues that are going on here. I don't need to hear some preacher pontificate about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about theology. Theology, if we were to define it, is simply this. It is the study of God and God's relation to the world. It's immensely important. Theology answers those big questions that we're asking all the time about this world and of God. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And does it matter? J.I. Packer writes, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. God calls his people to know him and to know him well. We're not to be like those fishermen on the pier that are just casting about randomly and incidentally hooking earlobes and calves and all kinds of other body parts. 
with our half-baked knowledge of God. No, we must grow in our knowledge of God, and when you grow in your knowledge of God, you grow in your skill of living. So how do you do that? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning, Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you're not there, grab a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. I've got only so much time. I don't want to ride the bench next week, so let's get there quickly. And uh, you can turn to page 404, by the way, if you're trying to find the place where we're at in the text. The first point that we're going to see in verses 1 through 4 is that the Word of God reveals the God of the Word. The text reads, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Let's stop there. Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9 takes an unexpected turn. You noticed in chapter 8 that it was a call for celebration. In fact, Nehemiah stood up to the people of Israel and he said, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8 verse 10, a verse that is familiar to some of us. But now chapter 9 opens up with the people fasting in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. That's not the attire of celebration, is it? It's the attire of mourning. Why are they mourning? Well, they'd been reading the Word of God, and as they uh, came into the Word of God, they saw the God of the Word, and they learned certain things about Him. The first is that God is great. They saw just how awesome and vast this God is. Secondly, they saw God's goodness. They saw how God had dealt with Israel in history and been so faithful to them time and time again. They also saw God's long-suffering. Even though God had dealt kindly with them, they had not dealt kindly with God in return. And they also saw God's mercy. Despite their unfaithfulness, they saw that God always leaves the door open for restoration. When you open up the Word of God, you see the God of the Word. And this is a very important leadership principle to leaders, to Christians. As you lead where you are, you must know God. Leaders know God. It's not just a, a head knowledge of facts that we've accumulated over the years if we've heard things about God. No, it's a substantial knowledge of Him, His person, his character, what he is like, how he interacts with us, his will and his ways. And the only way to come to know a person is for that person to disclose who they are. You can know a person for years and come one day to say to yourself, I never really knew them because they never opened themselves up to you. We find that the quality and the extent of our knowledge of God depends mostly on God and much less on us. And it comes from God allowing us to know him and he, the creator of the world, the Lord of hosts, the great God before whom the nations are like a drop in the bucket, he lets you know him. And he lets you know him through his word. And so as these people are reading the word of God, it leads them into this prayer of confession 
A prayer that then leads to a resolve to change and also a knowledge that God will restore their relationship to Him. And in three weeks, we'll talk about that restoration process, chapter 10. So what do we know about God? Well, the first thing we know is found in verses 5 and 6. God is great. The Levites pray, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone are God. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God is great. Now the purpose of the second commandment, found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, is it restricts people from making images or idols that attempt to depict God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18 asks the question, To whom can you compare God? To what image can you liken him? And the obvious answer to the question is, you can't. Any type of image that we try to construct to depict the God of the universe is infinitely too small. It's not big enough. It doesn't do justice to who he is or what he is like. It it misdirects our attention in some way. And I would even submit to you that this also applies to our freelance thinking about God. Our freelance thinking that doesn't line up with what the Bible says of him. You hear statements like, I like to think of God as, or I don't like to think of God as. So on one side, someone might say, I don't like to think of God as a judge. But I like to think about God as a father. In one way or another, when we make statements like this, we deny something that the Bible says of this vast, majestic, great God that we come to see in the Scriptures. J.I. Packer writes, Positively, the second commandment is a summons to us to recognize that God, uh, the Creator, or that God, the Creator, is transcendent. It means that He is above and beyond. He's outside of His creation. He's mysterious and inscrutable beyond the range of any imagining or philosophical guesswork of which we are capable. And hence, a summons to us to humble ourselves, to listen and learn of him, and to let him teach us what he is like and how we should think of him. What happens when you let God do the talking? You find out he's awesome. He's awesome. We see several things here in this text. Look at the prayer. We learn that God is eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. We learn that he is the highest one. Your name is exalted above all. We learn that he alone is God. You are the Lord. You alone are God. And that he is the the creator of all that we see and know and the sustainer of everything that we see and know. Let's look at this even more in depth. I want you to turn your Bibles with me now to Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah 40. And here we see some description of the vastness, the greatness of God. If you're turning your Bibles there, you can turn to page 600 and you'll find the page with me. 
verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I want you to do something with me for a moment. I want you to stick your hand out and look at the hollow of your hand. Kids, you can do this with me too. Just stick your hand out. Now imagine with me, how much water do you think the hollow of your hand could hold? I look at mine and I imagine maybe like a teaspoon, maybe a tablespoon. Someone who has larger hands might get two tablespoons. Well, the text says that God measured the earth, the waters of the earth with the hollow of his hand. We're talking about 332.5 million cubic miles of water that God measured in the hollow of his hand. God looks at the waters of the earth and he says, it's like a teaspoon to me. And all the depictions that we see here in Isaiah 40 are actually too small. God's just trying to give us some kind of visual so that we can interact with his magnitude, his greatness, his glory. Look at the the next part. He marked off the heavens uh, with a span. So a span is the distance between the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky finger. In biblical times, it was a common form of measure. They would measure like this. You can see how that might not work out so well if you didn't have very large hands. Now, I look at the span of my fingers, and I I could probably get the span of my fingers close to around an orange or an apple. You look at one of the biggest NBA players, a guy like Shaquille O'Neal, he probably makes it about halfway around a basketball. The text here says that God wraps his hand around the entire earth. The circumference of the earth, 24,901 miles of the earth, is small to him. It goes on, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, took out a measuring cup, made the earth, weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance. God is so powerful that he created the universe, creation ex nihilo. He spoke and it came into existence. Look then at verse 22, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. I mean, I'm thinking of the known universe here, which is vast beyond numbers that I can understand or fathom. Uh, Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host. That word host means stars. Same word they use in Nehemiah 9. By number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Does anybody here know how many stars there are in the known universe? Anyone? Close. I'm glad you guys don't because I have no idea either. Now, no idea. David Kornreich, an assistant professor of Ithaca College in New York uh, State, admits that the, the numbers of stars in the universe that we propose today is really just taking a, a stab in the dark at a number that is far beyond our understanding. They get the current guesstimate by the assumption that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 trillion galaxies in the universe. Sadly, that's half of our national debt which 10 trillion is a number that I can't even reckon with, so that's not good. Um, They multiply 10 trillion by the number of stars that they believe are in the Milky Way galaxy, 100 
billion. And what happens when you multiply 10 trillion by 100 billion? Well, you get a really, 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 really big number. Like one with 24 zeros behind it, kind of big. A septillion. Crazy. And listen to what Kornreich says. He emphasizes that this number is likely a gross underestimation. God is great. Do you see now why God doesn't like to be put inside of a box? His greatness knows no limits. He doesn't want to be confined to freelance thinking and little images of him. And when you understand the greatness of God, you should feel humbled like David in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. We should say, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Why is God mindful of you? Why does he care about the inner workings of your world. We're like so many ants just scurrying about on the ground, the ants that we walk by every day and we know nothing of their personal world. God's mindful of you because he is good. How much could you write about the goodness of God? What if I handed everyone here this morning a sheet of paper? And I said, I want you to just start writing everything you know about how good God is. Now, you can't share personal stories. You're only allowed to share truths that you've learned from the scriptures. How much could you write? Did you get a couple pages out? Page? Half a page? Well, Stephen Charnick in his two-volume work, The Existence and Attributes of God, needed somewhere around the neighborhood of 136 pages. And we're talking like really small print. I want you to hear him describe the goodness of God, and I'm not going to read all that to you. Uh, The language is dated but beautiful. He says, as God is great and powerful, he is the object of our understanding. But as good and bountiful, he is the object of our love and desire. The goodness of God comprehends all of his attributes. He could be none of this were he not first good. When it confers happiness without merit, it is grace. When it bestows happiness against merit, it is mercy. When he bears with provoking rebels, it is long-suffering. When he performs his promise, it is truth. When it commiserates a distressed person, it is pity. When it supplies an indignant person, which had to look that one up, poor or needy, it is bounty. When it secures an innocent person, it is righteousness. And when it pardons a penitent person, it is mercy. All summed up in this one name of goodness. And God is good, and we'll see that as he displays his acts to Israel in verses 7 through 15. One of the key words that we'll see in this chapter is the word give. And one way or another, the word give is used some 16 times. God is a given God because he is good. So let's look at the different ways he is good. He's good because he's a promise maker. Verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, 
and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give uh, to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Now think of this. Who in the world is Abraham? I mean, yeah, we've heard a lot of stories about this guy and he's kind of been built up because we've heard about him. But he's just some nameless figure in a place called Ur. He's one person of many others that lived in this region in this time during this period. What's to distinguish him between the guy uh, that lives next door to him? His father and his grandfather were idolaters. Abraham didn't know God, whether up or down, left or right, from anything else that he knew. And yet the text tells us in verse 7 that God lovingly, graciously, and tenderly chose him. And for no reason whatsoever made a promise to him. And because of his name, because of his might, because of his authority, he would keep that promise to him. And he did, time and time again. Why? Because he's good. We also see that he's a deliverer, verses 9 through 12. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of this land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. And so we see here in these verses a description of the exodus uh, when God removed Israel out of the land of Egypt. I like how Stephen Lee puts it in his article, We Complain Because We Forget. He gives us the perspective of the Exodus. He writes, The God of the universe tossed around the most powerful man on the earth like a toddler with a rag doll. God didn't just humble Pharaoh. He broke his spirit and revealed Pharaoh's impotence. A slave people and their God left him and his nation in shambles. This display of power sent vibrations throughout the world, inspiring fear and awe. That's why verse 10 says, you made a name for yourself. This deliverance of the Exodus was that point in history when Israel could look back and say, this was God's greatest deliverance upon us as a people. And whenever they would get to the place where they wondered if God cared about them, if God loved them, if he had a purpose for their life. They simply had to open up the history book and read. And they would see God came to us in our lowest state of misery. And he attended to our needs. He delivered us. There's an important leadership principle here we're looking at history. You might feel a little distance, a little removed from it. But it's so important to understand history because history points us towards truths. 
In fact, leadership principle number 30 is leaders are historians. Aldous Huxley wrote that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons that history has to teach. It's true, isn't it? In two short weeks, we're going to see that the nation of Israel developed spiritual amnesia. They left the land of Egypt and they got pretty gripey pretty quickly, didn't they? Moses, what's going on here? Why no water? No beef? We had beef before. Why can't we have beef now? Moses, I've got blisters on my feet. Who said that you're the boss, Moses? Who said that we're better off here? Why don't we instead just go back there? And you start thinking to yourself, saying, boy, this is a gripey bunch of people, isn't it? Hold on. What if your life was a biblical reality TV show? Hmm. I wonder what kind of things we would hear. Why do I have to have this for dinner? Why can't I get a better job? I want this house instead of this house. I wish I had this type of boat. Why don't people see the, the quality of work that I do? Why, why, why? We can just be just like the people of Israel. God, I know that you have forgiven all of my sins at the cross, rescued me from eternal conscious torment and hell, given me everlasting joy, but seriously, ramen noodles for dinner? Lee encourages you to take time to look back on God's fingerprints over your life by remembering. Remember how God has protected you from making a shipwreck of your life. Remember how God has withheld certain consequences you deserve. Remember how you walked away from that terrible car wreck. Remember how God spared someone that you love dearly from that illness. Remember the good friends that he's placed in your life to encourage you, to be there for you, to inspire you in your faith. Remember how God may have miraculously healed you. Remember how he answered that impossible prayer request that you gave to him. Remember how he sustained you when you were unemployed. Remember that he forgave you by placing his son upon the cross and watching his son be brutalized for you. Remember, that God is good. We also see in verses 13 and 14 that he's a lawgiver. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded uh, them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Now we don't often tend to think of God's Law is a display of God's goodness. But notice that these leaders do. You gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You might not consider law to be a good thing until you see law either abused or be non-existent. Trust me, when there is no law, things get bad quickly. Elser Begg shares in his book a story in Pathway to Freedom. Um, he was given the opportunity to address some 750 uh, people in the legal profession. Now, what would you do if you had that opportunity? Stand up in front of a room full of lawyers. I know you'd be tempted to tell your best lawyer joke, but resist that temptation. Begg said that instead of doing that, he decided to read the Bible. 
He writes, over the buzz of general conversation and the sounds accompanying the arrival of dessert, I began to read from the 19th Psalm. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. He writes, Now I am well used to the public reading of Scripture in the context of respectful silence. But on that day in the ballroom of the Renaissance Hotel, it was a different silence. So different that I can think of no other occasion I've experienced when the plain and straightforward reading of the Scriptures was accompanied by an almost palpable impact on all who were listening, including myself. He continues, I wonder whether the assembly of lawyers was not dramatically impacted by the majestic law of God as it is set out in the Scriptures. Not a few of those present would be quite prepared to admit that the grand ideas of truth and justice which had drawn them to a career in law, had been long lost along the way. They had been swallowed up in a system of plea bargains, out-of-court settlements, and the interminable juggling of conflicting agendas. The concept of an objective, valid standard of moral rectitude, forming the basis for trial and judgment, had been misplaced and neglected in the pressure to get a verdict. Where would we be without God's holy law? Can you imagine a world with no law? That's why Psalm 119.103 says that the word of God is sweeter than honey to my mouth. God is good because he is a lawgiver. Verse 15, he is also a provider. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now I'm running out of time here and I'm definitely riding the bench next week. But I would like to close with one last little thought here. J.I. Packer in the preface of his monumental book, Knowing God, a book which is sold over one million copies to expand people's understanding of who God is. He begins the book with these words. As clowns yearn to play Hamlet, so I have wanted to write a treatise on God. Wow. He notes that there are two kinds of interests in Christian things. Those who spectate. They're looking down at the road as from a distance. They watch the travelers travel on the road. They make criticisms of the travelers. Sometimes they engage in speculation about the road. How did it come to be? Why does it exist? But that's about as far as they go. They're spectators. It's theoretical only. The traveler has a much different problem. They're asking questions like, which way should I go? How can I make it there? And what's going to sustain me along the way? Problems that you can't just talk about, but problems 
that require decision and action. Spectators and travelers may think about the same things about God, but their problems are different. For instance, why does evil exist? The spectator attempts to find some theoretical explanation of how evil can consist with a God that is both sovereign and good. The traveler, his or her problem is how do I master the evil that I am so prone to give my life into? How do I allow the Spirit of God to direct my steps and bring good about in this world? The spectator is stuck asking, how can God conceivably be three and yet one? The traveler wants to know, how can I show proper honor and love towards the three persons of the Trinity who are working together to bring me from sin to glory? Where are you in this journey of knowing God? How are you approaching it? Are you a spectator? Is it just theoretical for you? Or are you a traveler? Let's pray.